Hello everyone and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot, a film and television podcast in which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. My name's Edwin Davis and joining me this week through the miracle of satellite technology, it's Emily Benita. Hi Emily, how's it going? It's going well, Ed. Thank you. I very recently celebrated eight years of living in Scotland mm. and it is, it's just something that, you know, time, time, it's <laughs> relentless, um, but enjoying that the clocks have changed. We've done that thing mm-hmm. again, and the days are getting longer, and everything's very elastic. And yeah, but good. To summarise, good. And <laughs> how are you, please, Ed? Uh, I'm doing okay. I, I mean, it's been a few weeks since you and I last spoke, and I think the last time we spoke, the clocks had just gone back here, but they hadn't gone back in the UK, and. Boy, this year was bad for me for the for the clocks changing. It it completely destroyed my mind for like a few days. I was just so tired, and every this seemed to be the case for everyone at work as well. Like every time anyone was on a Zoom call for that first week, everyone just seemed really groggy, (laughs) completely out of it. Like, yeah, it's weird when there's just no differentiation in time anyway and then someone tells you by the way the time is different and you have to try and factor that in it's just it doesn't help it doesn't help but on a more positive note uh my arm hurts a lot <laughs> because i got my first shot of that that there moderna the uh, vaccine i got it yesterday uh which i'm very very happy about um very pleased to uh be one step closer <laughs> to being able to do like four or five more things than I've been able to do for the last year because I'm not I'm not planning to go to raves or anything uh, anytime <laughs> soon but like I am in my mind it's like god I could go to a movie theater I could be the the onion article like fucking loser goes to see a movie on his own again or uh go to a gym you know oh. <laughs> that's just a handful of things that I'm looking forward to being able to do again which would be quite nice and yeah I just yeah, I'm just very, very happy about it. <laughs> uh, that's kind of that's kind of it. I can't be more articulate about it than hey, that because I think I think it's such an enormous thing. <laughs> you don't need to be. I am really looking forward to when I get mine. Uh, mm. So you're fifty percent ahead of me just now, but like the clocks, eventually I'll catch up to you. <laughs> yes, yes, kind of. Uh, wish they had been the Johnson and Johnson just so they could get it all out of the way. But also, the day after effects of that one do seem rough. So <laughs> it kind of feels like a you know weighing it up. I think the Moderna one can also like just leave you just really knackered for like two or three days. But mm. yeah, so you you kind of have to take your lumps any which way. But um, yeah, it's just you know planning things, having to keep appointments. I'm not used to it. I've spent I spent a year with no appointments. You know, having to be a place <laughs> at a certain time. Uh, is now a, a great, uh, brave new world for us all. What a rush. <laughs> so we'll go on to the news for this week. Uh, I think that this, we were just talking before, and that a lot happened in the last sort of two weeks. So I think probably just do a, a whole, a full news episode this week, just kind of uh, 
uh, kind of clear our accounts. Uh, mm. And I think we'll start off with a, a trio of sad passings that occurred um, the week, uh, like two weeks ago, and that we would have talked about last week. But unfortunately, uh, you were stranded on the side of a road. <laughs> yeah yeah as Um, anecdotes go it's not particularly fun but (laughs) it is a fresh one (laughs) after Mm. months of nothing happening something Mm. happened but yes a lot's been going on while i was stranded on the side of the road yeah so uh i think the first one um notable kind of uh uh, death that happened a few weeks ago was uh george siegel the kind of veteran uh american actor who i first saw as a sitcom dad in just shoot me in the 90s and uh much like elliot gould who i also first discovered as a a sitcom dad in the 90s then years later looking back and being like oh this guy had like a whole massive very career (laughs) was like a star of some massively acclaimed movies in the 70s in fact they were both uh, starred together in the movie California Split, the Robert Altman movie, one of the great kind of like hangout character study movies of the uh, of the nineteen seventies. And uh, in later years, uh, George Gold also was a regular on the show The Goldbergs, the sitcom set in the eighties where he plays the granddad, uh, which he was very good and very charming on. And it's just it like any time uh, an older actor passes away or an older artist, you know there's that that tinge of like ah oh, you know like they they managed to do so much they lived such a full life but they were such an agreeable fun enjoyable presence every time they appeared in anything that you can't help but just be a little bit sad that we're not going to get more of them even if you know they were well into their 80s and uh by all rights you know kind of could have hung it up if they wanted to and just didn't because clearly they loved doing the work absolutely i only saw a little bit of the Goldbergs um, and I think it is definitely best in (laughs) small doses but I think there's something about people who feature in sitcoms I mean we had this with Cloris Leachman recently Mm. you know that these people are incredibly steady faces and warm and optimistic and there's always something a particular kind of grief when they go and I was watching a Muppets movie and realized, oh, Cloris Leachman is the receptionist. And like, she just has this absolutely bright little spark of a cameo in it. And yeah, it's just that loss of that familiarity, isn't it? Which is mm. just a real, it's a real bummer. Mm. Yeah. And we, I think also it's true of the other kind of like notable death of a, uh, a sitcom staple, uh, Jessica Walter, who certainly I think for, you and I, people of our generation, will always be Lucille Bluth, just one of the funniest sitcom characters in history, like one of the great performances, but who, someone who had just like an amazing career spanning decades, you know, from working with Sidney Lumet on the uh, the group, not the women, the group in the 60s, uh, trying to kill Clint Eastwood in Play Misty for Me, um, being through like, all the way to the 90s, you know, she was the voice of the mum in Dinosaurs, which was a wonderful thing for me to discover as someone who watched that show for years. And thinking like, oh, right now I know where I know that voice from. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, and then laterly, yeah, obviously Lucille Blue, she's incredible in uh, as that. Mallory Archer as well, where as uh, people joked, you know, some uh, Adam Reed who created Archer just basically said, oh, you know, 
I, I would like a Jessica Walter type and she just went, well, I'll do it. Sure, <laughs> why not? Say it's similar to like uh, Sean Connery being in Time Bandits because they wanted a, a Sean Connery type. It's like, why, why, why settle? Why settle for, for uh, an imitation? Cat Murray as well, a Michael York mm. type. Love a, love a type mm. who's like, well, I'm i'm the originator just just have me yeah i was mm-hmm. i was really saddened um by jessica walter um dying and i was simultaneously sort of uplifted as to how she really ended up becoming the internet's gangy like mm-hmm. everyone mm-hmm. was just outpouring with like fuck she was so funny in this and her comic timing was second to none and i think it reminded me of my favorite arrested development joke which is the filthiest and one in it, which is, you know exactly what I'm going to say, don't you? Yeah, I know, I know. We need to get rid of the C word. I'll leave when I'm good and ready. (laughs) And she did. And she did. And I think it's difficult because I don't think she ever was really given the justice or respect that she deserved after that horrendous Mm. uh, interview um, with the cast. And it was a little bit of a kind of... uh, stuck in my craw a bit when um many of the men in arrested development you know the actors were sort of tribute you know giving her tribute and yet hmm, was that really ever done anywho the range that she had like i was like of course yeah play misty for me and she was just you know the the wink that launched a thousand gifts and she will be (laughs) sorely missed yep and she could uh imitate a chicken like no one else has she ever seen one though that's, that's the question <laughs> no word of a lie in a recent sunderland game because my boyfriend <laughs> is a long-suffering sunderland fan a mm-hmm. goal was scored and he will be um very disappointed in me that i cannot remember for the life of me the name of the player who scored it but he put his hand above his head in his like goal celebration and i went <sighs> is that is that a tribute to jessica walter no, it turned out that the gaffer had just been like, you need to be like sharks out there. And he was like, I've got uh, a goal, so I have a fin, <laughs> like gaffer said. And I was like, oh, shame. But another case uh, of me reading far too much into things, hopefully. But there you go. And our final death from the last couple of weeks was uh, Larry McMurtry, the legendary author of, amongst other things, uh, Lonesome Dove, The Last Picture Show, uh, starring the aforementioned uh, Cloris Leachman, um, mm. uh, in, I think, the role that won her Oscar? It was, yeah, say. it was, because she had to convince Polly Platt, well, actually, I think Polly Platt was really into it, but she had to convince uh, Bogdanovich to cast right. her, and then she got her Oscar, so I was like, yes, Cloris. <laughs> And also, you know, was a screenwriter in his own right and an Oscar winner in his own right, having won the Oscar for co-writing the screenplay for Brokeback Mountain and uh, showing up to the Oscars in jeans, as uh, everyone saw when the, a picture of that was being shared. Uh, fun enough, before he died, like it was just posted, I, uh, uh, a film bar, I believe it was on Twitter, shared it like a couple of days before he passed away, just coincidentally, and then it got a resurgence of interest afterwards. Um, because you love you love to see someone who's you know just so casual <laughs> mm. <laughs> or just show up to a big award ceremony thinking like I'm not putting on trousers going to show up in jeans uh, pr- presumably thinking ah I'm probably not going to win you know no one's going to take pictures of me I don't need, I, I'll just put a jacket on um, but uh, an incredible writer someone who's you know I've, I've read a few of his books I read the last picture show I've read the 
his last, I think the final novel he wrote, The um, Last Kind Words Saloon. And I'm currently reading, in tribute to him, I'm currently reading Lonesome Dove. And he was just like such a wonderful writer of characters. Like all of his characters feel so alive. He was so good at capturing a certain kind of melancholy Americana where everyone's very funny and very wry and just trying to make it, you know, trying to make it through the day. Mm. And he did it so entertainingly. And again, you know, he was, he was, he was fairly old. He was in his eighties and he had slowed down a lot in recent years. So there isn't a, a sense that, you know, you know, we necessarily would have got another great novel from him, but the depth and breadth of the work they did over the course of his life was so impressive that it's hard not to feel uh, a great sadness at his passing mm, absolutely i love the last picture show deeply and i mean just oh who who doesn't love anyone who dresses casually for the oscars mm-hmm. yeah yeah that or you know i i like the extremes you either have yeah. to go incredibly casually or you're bjork i was you gonna know. say that's the scale <laughs> mcmurtry or bjork pick a side <laughs> Uh, so we'll go on to our kind of like rest of the news roundup now. Uh, we'll start off with news I'm sure you'll be very, very interested in, uh, Emily, oh, which is the pain. news that Amanda Seyfried is going to playing uh, Elizabeth Holmes in The Dropout, the adaptation of the, of the, the, the kind of like true crime, I guess, story of um, Theranos and everything to do with that whole wonderful, massive, uh, colossal scam um she's replacing kate mckinnon who had previously been cast as her which you know it makes sense you know she's a good mimic and you know a fun performer but um as soon as i saw this i thought oh that sounds like you know you know not to uh downplay kate mckinnon but it definitely sounds to me like a trade-up in terms of someone who i think is a, a terrific actor you know I, I i don't like mank but amanda seafried is fantastic in it and she's someone who has always been great and someone who i think deserves sort of like there's many high profile roles that she can get because she's always been such a, a great presence and i think she could really bring something to that role particularly in terms of the um i think the requisite intensity that you need to kind of portray Elizabeth Holmes and to try and get across the reason why she managed to uh, captivate and trick so many people for such a long time. Absolutely. I'll be honest, as much as I like Amanda Seyfried a whole bunch, like, I mean, she was brilliant from Mean Girls onwards, like get on board everyone who didn't didn't have to take this long. Um, You know, basically like Les Miserables, oh, she sings. It's like, yeah, but she can tell when it's going to rain by her boobs. Mm. <laughs> She's a sexy <laughs> mouse. Like, like, genuinely hilarious. And, you know, I have, I still haven't seen Mank and maybe I won't for a long time because did I mention I cancelled my Netflix? But, <laughs> I, you know, when I heard that, I was like, oh, okay. Because to me, in my heart, it's similar to Edie Falco and Hillary Clinton as we were talking about not that long ago where I'm like, you know, it's just not quite there for me. And it's not to say that I doubt Amanda Seyfried or Edie Falco's ability. And it's not quite a sort of mimicry thing. There's just something that makes me think that's not my first choice. And I understand that it's such a weird kind of subjective gut reaction. And I look forward to being proved wrong. 
But when Kate McKinnon was initially announced, I was like, oh, they're going to try and play this for laughs unless this is the vehicle that's going to turn McKinnon into wig, right? Mm. Because Kirsten Wig, like, and her agent and her whole team were incredibly canny by being like, you're not just a comic actor. You are going to be in every indie film, almost like, you know, kind of snatching the crown from Parker Posey. And mm-hmm. we're going to show, you know, you're going to have really drab, long brown hair and you are going to work your tush off <laughs> to be taken seriously. And I wondered whether this was going to be McKinnon's moment. But I think, oh, no, they're just going to play it for laughs. And like the eyes and the voice. I am pretty obsessed with Elizabeth Holmes, Ed, mm-hmm. because as I think I've mentioned before, my area of true crime is not murder it's fraud and cults Mm. of course not to say that murder doesn't actually factor in both quite often but i find homes and and the and billy of fire festival fascinating because i don't think they are people like other con artists who are in on it i think their level Mm. of delusion and what venture capitalism has allowed people to sell is you know i just find that character profile so fascinating because she basically said wouldn't it be great if we could do this and everyone yeah Mm. it would and Mm. she went i've got this nice video and uh no one should have to say goodbye before it's time and they were like brilliant take all my money she didn't have a prototype like oh my god and so i think there's you know there's various podcasts about her i think the dropout is also the name of um of that and such a like meaty character and again i haven't really seen film or tv catch up to this kind of modern character yet apart from like quite quickly made documentaries so Mm. to actually dig into this i'm like oh you know this is juicy and i think the problem is for me I just want it. I just want Anne Dudek, who mm, other people yeah. will probably know from House and a, and a guest role in Friends, but to me is Claire from the book group. <laughs> and mm-hmm. just she not only has the the real kind of physical, like quite eerie likeness, I think she can do exactly that intensity, kind of be on the edge of like something quite comic but be able to kind of bring it back because i think it's the absurdity is the line to tread it's not to necessarily play for laughs but just to be like as you said ed that kind of charisma and that magnetism Mm. that Mm. managed to draw people in and seafood at the moment just seems really delicate to me because i think that voice is key Mm. and but it has to be it can't just be a caricature either yeah, And I know probably the age is kind of out for Andy Deck, but again, I'm like, people can age down, particularly women, a lot better than anyone gives credit for. And it's literally just like, oh, but you know what? Also, like, I think Margot Robbie. Yeah, I could definitely see that. You know, and that makes me a bit sad that maybe it's not because, you know, she could probably get the the look and the voice and already has a kind of established line from Tonya Harding of these sort of characters. So... 
absolute best of luck to Amanda. I'm really looking forward to seeing what she's doing. But again, like a lot of casting decisions recently have just made me feel a bit like, mm, I don't know. Mm. Fuck it, Ed. Maybe even Carrie Mulligan. <laughs> like, I don't think she was cast well in Promising Young Woman. And the reviewer, whose name I forget in Variety, made his point so badly that then any sort of criticism was null and void. Yeah. But, but even Carrie Mulligan, I think, would kind of do a good job. I'm just like, I don't know. I think Amanda Seyfried just seems quite delicate. And I look, but I look forward to being proven very wrong, as I'm sure I will mm. be. But them's my many thoughts and feels as ever. <laughs> yeah, I was just uh, looking up who's involved on the creative side of that to get a sense of the tone they're going for. And I just realized that uh, the series, at least I guess the pilot, is being directed by Michael Showalter. Oh, get in. Yes. Yeah. Oh, big win. Hello, search mm. party. Boom. Okay, right. I'm excited. I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll trust him. <laughs> yeah, because that is like search party, I think, is something that really, particularly the later seasons, particularly the third season, the third season, like, really does get into that idea of someone who's like a con artist or a, a, a very effective liar who is able to kind of like spin things in a certain way to their own ends yeah and being able to tell that story from that perspective um so yeah i think he he he's got the goods i think he could do something really interesting with that obviously you know it depends on on the script and the writers as far as i could tell uh the writers maybe of a journalism background so it'd be interesting to see how that kind of uh turns out and the only other f- thing i think of in terms of you know a, a, a recent work that really got the idea of like being able to be from the perspective of the scam artists was a uh, bad education not that one or that one <laughs> you know. but the the huge ackman one yeah um which was not a movie that i was massively taken with not as much as i wanted to because mm. it's a good story and it's got a good cast but i thought that that you know in telling the story of a man who was involved in a fairly massive fraud that ran for years and it all unraveling it did a really good job at telling it from that perspective and also showing why he was able to kind of pull the wool over people's eyes for so long and why mm. he was like this really charismatic figure who was able to deflect people's suspicion for a really really long time yeah i i enjoyed it i'm with you i think it felt a little bit too made for tv rather than a film in its own right and mm. it kind of felt like I would almost would have preferred it to have been properly a TV show. Mm. And I think yeah. it's just because it couldn't really make up its mind what it was. But Alison Janney, again, so mentioning um, I, Tonya, like, just brilliant. Yeah. Also, yeah. actually, just thinking about Michael Showalter, like, make it a Wet Hot American Summer reunion and get Elizabeth <laughs> Banks. Like, oh, yeah. I think yeah, she'd, she'd be, be great too, but I think the problem is, Ed, is that it's it's almost like there's kind of a proliferation of blonde actresses in their mid twenties to um, early forties. What's that about? Mm. We'll now go on to the uh, section that is kind of uh, the state of streaming, I guess, which uh, is is kind of a a subject that we come back to again and again on the show and particularly in the last year as um streaming became like the only option in a lot of places and for large waves of the year as 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 movie theaters remain shuttered in a lot of places and a lot of big movies no uh move from debuting on in theaters to uh streaming 
solely or in the case of something like what uh, Warner Brothers are doing with Godzilla versus King Kong where you know that's playing at home and and cinemas at the same time and seems to be doing pretty well with it and I guess yeah I'll just roll that in as well like that movie's on course to earn about 50 million dollars over this weekend which is the most that any movie has made at the US box office since Sonic the Hedgehog came out (laughs) over a year ago so um, clearly that's a, a successful model and some hybrid model is probably what we're going to be looking at in the future but we're not there yet we're still in a point where a lot of big movies are going to streaming instead and one of the big stories this week was the announcement that the second and third films in the Knives Out trilogy, <laughs> I guess, will be going to Netflix. Obviously, the first Knives Out played in theatres. It was literally like one of the last like big yeah. movies to come out before everything shut down. And certainly the last um, kind of big original movie that became a word of mouth hit, you know, coming out at the end of, of 2019 and still playing in some theatres when sort of things started shutting down. Uh, was it was a pretty significant hit for its budget. Uh, it was, I think, it was like forty million dollars, and it ended up making over three hundred million worldwide. Um, a sequel was announced, but uh, apparently the sequel rights and rights to the property, I guess, uh, belonged to Ryan Johnson rather than the studio behind it, Lionsgate. So uh, instead of going with them, Ryan Johnson and his producing partner. Um, shopped the sequel sequels around and uh, landed at Netflix, who have bought the rights for the second and third movies for around $400 million, which is a good payday for Mr. Karina Longworth and will ensure that those two movies get made. The second one apparently is going to start filming in Greece in June of this year uh, and will presumably debut on the platform uh, either late 2021 or early 2022. And... That's just a very fascinating thing, really, because obviously the first one was such a huge hit um, in theatres. You know, it was a, a word of mouth thing where it kept kind of going and going and going because people went to see it and like, oh, you know, this is like the kind of movie that people don't really make anymore and it doesn't get shown in theatres anymore. And now <laughs> the second and third ones will not be shown in theatres or they'll have like very limited uh, theatrical releases. Mm, it's a weird one, Ed, because I feel like Knives Out to me is just like Clue in that mm. every time someone quotes it, I'm like, oh, God, yeah, it's really funny. And then when I watch the full thing, I'm like, yeah, there's a reason why people only quote these bits because a lot of it is quite <laughs> saggy or just not really there. And I remember being really hyped for Knives Out and mm. very excited in the first act. And then it just really kind of ebbed away from me. And... I mean, it gave us such a perfect meme. And it's not to say that um, Daniel Craig's character, Benoit Blanc, isn't sort of interesting and fun. And I like Lakeith Stanfield as his, you know, one of his, um, what would you say? Sidekick. That was the word I was looking for. Yeah. I was like, accomplice. No, that's <laughs> that's the crime one. Assistant, not really. <laughs> Fellow police officer. But again, it was just like, it made me sad because I just think we're all so starved of this kind of thing in cinemas mm-hmm. that it was like, oh, it's uh, not half bad. And I just felt like, you know, instead of focusing on an ensemble cast and making it a genuine mystery, it was like, we're going to really actually only have like three real characters in this. Mm. And so as you can tell, I was not as keen on it as a lot of people are. And I don't want to yuck anyone's yum. Having said that, 
two sequels. Like, I mm. don't really get why Benoit Blanc is as good a character to then hook a franchise on. And mm. it kind of, like, I guess I'm spoiled in, in many ways, but in particular because I grew up with Poirot. Mm. And it was like, yeah. well, here's a feature length murder mystery that has a really solid story. David Suchet is just brilliant and really charismatic and manages to sort of lead as a protagonist through an ensemble cast. And that just didn't happen in Knives Out. Like, that's not how that is. Like, Benoit Blanc isn't the main character. So now that they're going to shift and do that, I'm like, okay, interesting. And again, you know, people don't make these kinds of films anymore because as we've said time and time again, Ed, the mid-budget movie is the realm of streaming now mm. and streaming only so i think it's just going to get lost amongst netflix stuff and i mean you know i think it was quite optimistic of you there to say trilogy because at the moment that's what we've got mm. but i wouldn't put it past them to sort of stretch it out and i just want i mean maybe ryan johnson won't end up doing it but i really like him and i like that he sort of swings big and doesn't always hit you know, and I really like him, how he comes across as a person. And yes, as Mr. Karina Longworth, I, I trust her taste and judgment. So there's a kind <laughs> of like, oh, yeah, they're a really cool couple and they really love films and everything they do. And in this climate, why wouldn't you shop around and kind of do something different? But I just felt like Knives Out should be its own little kind of kooky film. I, I don't. I I'm, I don't care enough about Benoit Blanc to see him around another bunch of crazy people. Um, mm. What was nice was that um, Jamie Lee Curtis had a very amusing Instagram post about it in her kind of like idea of bringing everyone up to speed as to where the thrombies were. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, it's just nice to know that Jamie Lee Curtis has the phrase vaginal scented bath bomb on one of her Instagram <laughs> captions now. Like that's always a delight. But yeah, I don't know. It feels like I think the spirit wasn't really there to begin mm. with. And it's going to be so stretched out like a, like a chew, an overchewed piece of gum again, would love to be proven wrong, but it just doesn't click to me. Why? You know, it would be really great to see Ryan Johnson doing other, because the man, the man can write, and like it's funny to sort of track his. He's got such a unique path, I think, in in film today when you look at his body of work, and that it's almost like this kind of inverse, or, or you know, the two lines have met at the top now, where he broke out with Brick, which was like incredibly moody, and um, the language was impenetrable, but like an incredible, like for all intents and purpose, purposes, quite a serious, cool neo-noir. And now mm. he's kind of got, you know, it's not Joseph Gordon-Levitt in kind of teen angst, but Daniel Craig being a ridiculous detective, you know? Mm. And it's kind of like, I found the Brothers Bloom a little bit too kooky for its own good. But, and I mean, I guess, where do you go from Star Wars? And I respect him because he's not someone who's like, cool, I'll just hop over to the MCU because I wouldn't be surprised if he was offered that at all. Mm. But uh, I don't know. I'd just like to see more genuinely original 
content and stories and characters from him that aren't stretched into a trilogy or a franchise when there's just not the heft of it there to sustain it Mm. yeah he is interesting in that he's like the only person of like the current batch of filmmakers you know like everyone always talks about oh you know like the reason you sign on to do an mcu movie or a disney movie or a star wars movie is they then you know you can fund all the little movies that you want to work on and he's like the only person who genuinely did that yeah like yeah he took took the clout from that i was like cool i'm gonna make my modestly budgeted you know drawing room mystery because i like them i like detective fiction i want to make a detective movie that has big stars in it and it worked out brilliantly and i I wonder how much of that is that you know the backlash from some quarters to the last jedi which is kind of like yeah i'm good (laughs) i don't want to make another movie that has kind of like massive expectations from nerds i'm gonna just make something that uh seems fun to me versus you know john favreau just like being totally part of the disney machine now so enmeshed in its gears that you know like he'll just kind of happily keep doing stuff with them for as long as they'll have him but yeah I, i'm like you i i would much rather like knives out have been a big success for him that allows him to then go okay here's like five of the original scripts i have you know can i make one of these and then you know he does another thing that you know hits and he gets to do more things versus it becoming its own franchise you know but then again that's the that's just the kind of the way the film industry works particularly now it's like there's no there's so few original ips in general so many original projects that kind of get made and end up being successful and those that do immediately the response is not "Ooh, let's make more original stuff that happens to be like this it's like let's make sequels to this yeah like let's not all let you know every studio doesn't go okay well we'll set 30 million dollars aside and make our own like detective movies um you know suddenly it's like "Ooh, knives out too that's where the money is Mm. let's see how we can get hold of that and you know i think that's um that's a shame and like it's not like that uh feeling hasn't been a part or or that drive hasn't been part of hollywood for a very very long time but uh it kind of feels like now like there's so many kind of like cinematic universes and so many so few original ideas getting made that it feels like especially uh sad when something like knives out hits you know is is an original movie that people like and then it doesn't lead to like more interesting original movies Absolutely. And that's the problem, isn't it? Because it's people who don't have the, maybe that's cruel to say that it's people who don't have the imagination, but when you are dealing with these kind of amounts of money, it's just looking at hard data. And that almost, Mm. that always, whenever I say data now, it just makes me want to speak like Adam Buxton being the queen (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Laura, Laura, Blanda Data, oh William Katie. Anyway, uh, apologies, buckles. And it's like, but people paid for knives out. It's much harder to make the leap somehow to say people paid for something that was original and lighthearted and a passion project and everyone clearly had a great time. Hmm. And maybe we just kind of run with that. It's like, no, 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 people just want knives out. And again, it's like, well, do they? Because, you know, it, it's uh, Benoit Blanc, as far as I'm aware, is going to be the only returning character. So it's, yeah. a, it's, a, pr- it's a pretty big gamble and a p- pretty big drop off to assume. Because I was like, I mean, why not have, I'd much rather 
we we return to the thrombies and uh Anna de Arnas now that she's you know her cardboard cutout has been <laughs> <laughs> thrown into the street see how she's doing with that as as head of the household for some kind of continuity but yeah but people just point at certain numbers and then uh I don't know but again Ryan Johnson is someone who as we were sort of talking about a while ago in terms of who gets a free pass, he's definitely one of mine. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I'm just really tired of, of franchises and this kind of, there's very little that's just kind of appreciated in its own sphere and just left alone mm-hmm. to be. Yeah. Yeah, uh, and which takes us on to our next news story, which is about franchises. Mm. And also, again, very much in the realm of the state of streaming, uh, is that two fairly high-profile Disney movies, uh, Black Widow, the latest installment in the MCU, and Cruella, the prequel to uh, 101 Dalmatians starring Emma Stone, uh, which feels so like a 30 Rock movie. <laughs> it's kind of hard to believe it's real are both going to be debuting on Disney Plus and theatres at the same time. Disney Plus, uh, if you have a subscription, you have to pay $30 for it, similar to what they did for Mulan and Raya and The Last Dragon most recently. And those feel you know, fairly significant because you know Black Widow was meant to come out last May, I think, and was one of the first kind of like really big movies that got moved because of the pandemic and kept getting delayed, obviously, because the pandemic didn't end. Um, And it always felt, to me at least, like a real line in the sand sort of movie. Like this was not a movie that Disney would put onto streaming because the potential payday for it was so huge in theatres. And that they are instead going, well, okay, we're going to put it in theatres, but also on streaming maybe suggests it's just one of one of two things to me either the economics working out where they think streaming works out for them or they think you know certainly here in america you know a lot of people are getting vaccinated so a lot of people will be able to go and see stuff in theaters um in the weeks ahead and even if you can't get to full capacity you could probably make a decent amount of money there that it makes sense for them to do this kind of uh, simultaneous release where you know they'll make a decent amount of money that they wouldn't have made if they put it out up on streaming you know six months ago like the the situation has improved just enough that they think okay it makes sense for us to like do this hybrid model with these two fairly high profile movies now uh, which also is supported by the fact that uh the next big marvel movie um which is the like martial arts one that i think is coming out at the end of the year currently they have no plans for that to be put onto disney plus that one that they're, they're treating as pure theatrical but it certainly points to the maybe some of the thinking at disney is that this kind of like simultaneous release hybrid release model is way more viable than perhaps they had believed a year ago yeah and i think again it's kind of coming back to that laura laura data Mm-hmm. they're just looking at it and being like these lines and numbers are going the way we like so we will you know do it more mm-hmm. <laughs> because disney it's disney plus not disney less and <laughs> i don't know i mean i am very much 
for hybrid models. But uh, I think, you know, with Disney's output, it has managed to, even sort of, I think just in terms of its pure original demographic, which is kids and family, take over from like Netflix and God knows what's going to happen to BBC and CBBC and any sort of original Mm. programming. Is CITV even going? I haven't checked. But I just think it's going to be interesting to see these other sneaky ways, like you were just saying in terms of, you know, how much more money to pile on top of things. Like, Mm. I mean, did I mention I've cancelled my Netflix account? But even just looking through like Prime, which I also don't have, but when I occasionally sort of hop on to Prime and it's like, here's an here's like a top up for another, you know, for Shudder or for BFI mm. player. And I'm like, it's just so much money in terms of subscriptions overall and a lot less than like several cinema tickets, but... I don't know, I think we'll have at least 18 months of a rush of being so excited to be able to go to the cinema again without mm. restrictions when that all sort of starts to come in. But I think they will try and wrangle as much money as they can on top of like a subscription because it is, e- even though it's money spent, it just looks like less than mm-hmm. than something else for the time being. So... Yeah, I don't know. I don't know how long it will it will actually last for, whether it will be sort of like a flash in the pan for two years or whether they'll be able to find a model that is more sustainable. But it looks like as Netflix's bubble is about to burst, although who knows what Knives Out will do to it, um, mm-hmm. that Disney's just going to swoop in and take up everything. And I think it will just be Disney and Amazon and a couple of mm. like really specific because that's the way that the content is going. It's like archive, massive franchise, or really small, <laughs> independent stuff. Oh, yeah. It it's going to be an interesting couple of years because I, you know, just even in casual kind of like chats with friends, the number of people who are apprehensive about things opening up or people who are excited but then again some of them are like i just want to keep staying home and watching netflix and other people like i never want to watch netflix again (laughs) Mm -hmm. so i think we'll kind of there'll be this weird mix of like a hybrid but then also the absolute extremes all at once and then uh, the last bit of news in this about uh, disney properties going to streaming uh was the news that uh luca the latest movie from pixar is going to be going straight to disney plus but with no payment unlike the other two movies and unlike some of the other pixar movies that have gone straight to streaming during the pandemic like soul and onward uh which uh is a uh, you know i think a, a, a shame because obviously pixar is a big uh, big name brand in american animation and sort of something with a huge following but also you know one of the few studios out there that is fairly strongly committed to original stories you know to go back to what we were talking about a minute ago um and this would be like their third original story in a, in a row after onward and soul and this one you know again it you know kind of seems to be very small scale all, all that's been released of it so far makes it seem like it's very influenced by like miyazaki and is very much kind of focused on you know a very small scale interesting 
affecting story and sort of thinking, oh yeah, that'd be nice to go and see in theatres because Pixar tell those sort of stories in a way that can be very kind of affecting and very beautiful. And the idea again of like small, intimate, personal stories just being something that cinema has no, uh, you know, physical cinemas, movie theatres have no place for is, uh, yeah, it's just a very depressing thought. I completely agree. And I think there's something... There's no denying that it's just culturally significant to see little stories on big screens. Mm, yeah. And just, I think there is just a sheer sort of like psychological kind of effect from just being like, look at this person who's big and bigger. <laughs> I think mm. it's just such a human thing to look up and to, to let, a character really have that space and inhabit that full attention mm. you know everything else is dark and their life is bigger and i think it is a shame because even though a lot of streaming has afforded arguably some of these stories to you know be told in a way that they possibly wouldn't have done or at least more people could potentially access them I think the actual story of supporting these things is and uh, these stories and these storytellers is a little bit more it's a little bit flakier than mm. than it's made out to be and I agree with you I think it's a real shame that it's the idea of like oh we must have like complete spectacle all the time mm. in order to get people out to a cinema and because I think what we also maybe don't really appreciate is that if you are, for example, a queer teenager and you're living at home, <laughs> you may not have your own Netflix account. Mm. Your only way of of being able to watch these things is to leave your home and not see, and you know, your parents not know that you know, just know that you're going to the cinema, but they don't have to necessarily follow you. Do you know what I mean? It's yeah. I wonder, maybe this is me sort of projecting my very specific millennial experience onto Gen Z who are all up in the Snapchat these days, I believe, Ed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, them and the shanties. <laughs> Wherever <laughs> else. I haven't been keeping up with the, the, the trends. I'm sure they're all singing about she, uh, sea shanties. Um, even if the, the boat in the Suez Canal has uh, put a dampener on all nautical themes for a while. But yeah, like you know, I, I, you just as you were talking, then I was just thinking it's a real, it's a real shame that if you end up in a place where you know, people think that the only stories worth telling on a big screen are ones about like superheroes as opposed to just like normal people having problems, <laughs> you know, or having relationships. You know, like there just seems to be something very but inherently devaluing about that and dehumanizing in a way that uh, yeah, it's just kind of shitty yeah <laughs> so well in this episode we're as we end all our episodes of shot of a shot recommends in which we talk about a piece of culture that we've enjoyed and we think you the listeners will enjoy as well emily what have you got to recommend for the listeners this week well it's a look back through the archives ed because i was reminded recently that rob bryden's annually retentive is a thing and mm. I've found there's a wee cache of it on uh, Daily Motion because it's one of those things that the BBC just sort of forgot that it did. It's quite weird what the BBC sort of picks and chooses 
to kind of um, have available or not. Um, and of course, it's all still in the mire of like rights and all this. But anywho, I remember watching it when it was broadcast and really enjoyed it because it is kind of a Larry Sanders show-esque uh, format where we see the panel show and the making of the panel show and cutting back and forth. It's also just got some really like brilliant people in it. Uh, Dave Gorman, who is just at the prime of his beauty and also like people that I'd completely forgotten from the UK, like tabloid writers and Sharon Horgan's in it. What more do you need? Um, so that's Rob Brydon's Annually Retentive. Sweet. I'm going to recommend a movie from the 1970s that I watched for the first time uh, this week and was really, really bowled uh, over by, which is Robert Altman's uh, Three Women, starring Sissy Spacek and Shelley Duvall as, as two of the women, two of the titular women. And it is a incredibly unsettling dreamlike movie about um the two you know it says three women but the main the main story is about the the, the two women played by spacek and duval who are nurses at kind of like a residential care facility um have this incredibly intense relationship and it's very much influenced or seems to be very influenced by um bergman particularly persona and it's all about you know shifting identities and it has this incredibly dreamlike um feeling to it which is appropriate because it was based on a dream that robert oldman had and you know he was still uh the guy who made mash so he was able to get pretty much any movie he wanted made at that point so he made it and he made this kind of really um vivid and unsettling movie that i knew basically nothing about prior to watching it and was really really uh, affected by i think it's really really interesting and a real showcase for what a varied filmmaker altman was particularly during that 70s period you know like if you compare it to mash or mccabe and mrs miller or the the long goodbye like mm. they all feel like so distinctive and this feels like such a different tenor and tone to what he was working in otherwise um, so I, as as someone who has seen so many of his movies already, it was just a delight to kind of discover this new facet to him that I'd never really considered. So that is Three Women, which um, I think is fairly widely available. Um, I watched it on Blu-ray from the Criterion Collection, but I'm pretty sure it's, it's fairly easy to find. Uh, and it's well worth your time. If you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast, then please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Player Friends, Spotify, all the usual places, raters, reviewers, and recommend it to your friends. It's the best way to help us grow our audience. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter, where we are at SRS underscore podcast. We'll be back next time with something entirely different. But until then, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. Bye.